Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you here today. And those of you who are joining us online, thank you for being with us today as well. I don't know what kind of a week that you had, but sometimes our lives or our weeks or our days can seem kind of blah or bleak. And if you lived in this area this past week, you might have experienced that this past Tuesday. Does anyone remember what happened Tuesday? Tuesday, we're only one month into spring, right? We're only one month into spring. And Tuesday, it snowed all day. Now, for those of you who are farmers and who are looking for moisture for your land, that might be good news to have snow. But for those of us who are looking forward to spring and looking forward to new life and see all that stuff, to see snow come down all day on Tuesday, all through Tuesday evening, and to wake up Wednesday morning to a winter wonderland on April 19th is kind of blah. So we can experience the blahs, which are kind of like a mild depression sometimes because of things that happen. Maybe we go away for a while and then we come back and we have to go back to work or we have to go back to school and we feel a little bit blah. Or sometimes we can feel like things are bleak, worse than blah, long-term blah, because things look desolate, things look harsh, we have tough things going on in our lives and we don't know or see what God might be doing. And the question arises, when life feels blah or bleak, what is God doing? Where is the joy of the Christian life that we're supposed to be experiencing? Why don't we feel lifted up in the spirit all the time? What is God doing when life feels blah or bleak? And and this question may have crossed the mind of someone that we are going to get to know quite well over the next few weeks. His name is Ezekiel, and he is one of the prophets that we find in the Old Testament part of our Bibles. He lived during a very difficult time in his nation's history. He survived the siege of Jerusalem, and then the Babylonians conquered the city, and they took away thousands of its citizens to live in the Babylon area. So Ezekiel was forcibly deported among this group. He was a war refugee, like the war refugees we see on TV who are fleeing from Ukraine. And now he lived with other exiles in and around the capital city of the empire in Babylon. And he may have wondered what God was up to in his life, in his nation's life. Life looked bleak. But as we enter into this study, we are going to discover that God was at his work even though Ezekiel did not at first see it. And I pray that as we begin his story today, if you are feeling a little bit blah, if you are feeling bleak or feeling like things are bleak, if you don't see what God is doing in that situation that you have prayed about or wondered about or struggled with for years, that you will be encouraged by the reality that God is still at his work. And today we start this series on the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And in all my years of reading the Bible, the book of Ezekiel has gained this reputation in my mind. 
It is the weirdest book in the Bible. It is the book about the strangest prophet in the Bible. We will meet someone who does some very bizarre things. And we will glimpse visions of God that are glorious and frustrating to interpret for us. We will see God give Ezekiel a very difficult ministry assignment, yet God would empower him to carry it out. And Ezekiel's words will continue to have relevance for our lives today if we will only give them the time to soak in and figure out what in fact is going on. And I pray that God will use his word in this ancient prophecy to comfort and reassure, reassure you that he is sovereignly in control and Lord over all despite the chaos that we see around us in our world. And today we're just going to try to get the lay of the land of the book of Ezekiel. We're just going to dip our toes into this book so we can dive in more fully next week. And to help us do that, I have included in your bulletins or programs this drawing of the book of Ezekiel. And so you'll want to take that out, and if you can bring this every Sunday, we'll have extra copies at the back, but this will help you follow the pathway of Ezekiel. And we're going to watch a video at this time that is going to draw this picture for you and narrate what's going on. So we'll look at the video, and then we're just going to look at the first three verses of this, of the, of the, of Ezekiel to answer the question, when life feels bleak or blah, what is God doing? So let's watch this video. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. 
So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot, and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another, and Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. And so, a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard, in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz, and the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11, we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people. Rather, he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land, and he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope, and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition, and it helps us understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment, first on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt, useless stick or as a rebellious wife, or as a dangerous raging lion that gets captured, or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. 
In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel, and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols. And so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride, and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives them the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. And so in the next video, we'll explore Ezekiel's profound vision of hope. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Ezekiel. Okay, did you get all that? <laughs> so there's an introduction to the overall book of Ezekiel. And there's another video that we'll look at later on in the series to explain chapters 34 to 48. But now we're going to start to work our way through it. And we start in the top right corner of the book, of this poster, which talks about 2 Kings 24, verses 8 to 17. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, 2 Kings 24, verses 8 to 17, it's on page 294 in the Bibles in front of you, if you don't have one with you today. And this describes the first Babylonian attack on Jerusalem, and the people that are deported here include Ezekiel. So 2 Kings chapter 24, starting in verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people in the land. 
And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So this describes an event that occurred in 598 BC where the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, the capital city of the Israelites. It contained the glorious temple of Solomon. It contained King David's palace and all the treasures of the nation. And the Babylonians capture the city, but they don't destroy it. They don't destroy the temple, they don't destroy the walls, they don't destroy anything in the city, they simply take away the people. In fact, we're told that Jehoiachin, the king, gives himself up to the king of Babylon. The destruction of the temple and of the walls and all of that is still coming and it will happen in about 8 or 12 years in 586 BC. But here the city surrenders, the Babylonians loot the temple and the king's house and take the thousands of leading citizens to Babylon. And they did this so that they could use these citizens to build up the Babylonian empire and also lessen the likelihood of rebellion in the future. If you take the leading citizens away or a good chunk of them, there's less likelihood of rebellion. Ezekiel is among these deportees. So he is forcibly removed to Babylon along with the king, his family, and entourage. So this is a time of national humiliation, of defeat, of shame. And maybe Ezekiel is wondering, though the nation deserved this humiliation, why did he have to go through with it? He was a priest. He was a man of God. So now, let's turn to Ezekiel, the book itself, and just look at the first three verses. And if you're looking for that in the Bibles in front of you, that's page 588. So Ezekiel chapter 1, and we'll just look at verses 1 to 3, which say, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now this short introduction gives us key reference points for the whole book. Verse 1 is told from Ezekiel's perspective, like an eyewitness account. He says, I was among the exiles. And then he tells us when this happens. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day. But the 30th year of what? And I think the strongest argument is that this is the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. He's now 30 years old. And if you look at the drawing and you look on the left side 
of the title Ezekiel, you will see him sitting down there by the canal with a little birthday cake beside him. And that birthday cake symbolizes it's the 30th year of his life, like it's his birthday. Well, what's the big deal about 30? Well, apparently in Israel, a priest could only begin their ministry in the 30th year, when they turned 30 years old. In fact, in Numbers 4, verse 30, the Israelites commissioned priests between the ages of 30 and 50. And in verse 3, we find out that Ezekiel was, in fact, a priest. So think about his own life for a moment. He is probably the son of a priest, and he is training to be a priest, and he is looking forward to ministering as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Jerusalem comes under siege, and Ezekiel is forcibly deported. Now he's not by the temple. He's by this irrigation canal called the Kabar. It came from the Tigris and Euphrates river system. It was outside of the capital city in this region probably designated for the exiles, for the Jews. Yet the verse ends with a dramatic intervention from God. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So though Ezekiel was not in Jerusalem, Though he was not ministering in the temple, God still had priestly work for him to do. And we will see several of these visions unfold throughout this book. But then we come to verses 2 and 3. And notice the perspective has changed. Verse 1 is from Ezekiel's perspective. Verses 2 and 3 is from the narrator's perspective. So some editor to the Ezekiel collection came along and added these verses to bring further clarity. And notice, they give us Ezekiel's name. Ezekiel doesn't name himself in the first verse, but the narrator of verses 2 and 3 reveals Ezekiel was the priest of the son of Buzi. And the author adds another critical time reference. He writes, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of the king of Jehoiachin. Notice that's the same king that we read about in 2 Kings 24. Now, did anyone catch how long this king reigned for? Three measly months. So he was 18 years old. He reigns three months. The city comes under siege and he gives himself up. The writer of 2 Kings also tells us he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Jehoiachin was no military hero. He did not have a long and lasting and influential reign. He did not lead the Israelites back to the Lord. There is nothing significant about him or his reign. So why would this editor of Ezekiel point to the fifth year of exile of King Jehoiachin as if that's a big deal, that he had some big reign. Well, his reign and his person was not spectacular or important, but his lineage was. And he was a descendant of King David. So when the king of Babylon removed Jehoiachin from the throne, and put his uncle on the throne instead, who was not from the line of David. This was a major catastrophe for the Israelites. 
and especially because God had promised David that someone from his line would rule over the nation forever. Well, didn't God promise this? And now the last king from the line of David has been removed and put into exile. And notice as well in verse 2 and 3, it says this is the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, which means that Ezekiel has been waiting and already struggling in Babylon for five years. He has little or no hope of serving in the temple. And the last king from the line of David has been removed from the throne. And the temple has been looted and their nation has been humbled. Life looks bleak. What is God doing? Yet in verse 3, we see hope. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon him there. God would visit his prophet in exile. God had a message for his people in exile while they lived in bleak circumstances. And the application for you and me today is simply this. When life looks bleak or blah, God is still at his good work. And we need to remind one another of this when we go through such times. God has not forgotten about us. God is not on vacation. God is not too busy with other problems to remember us. God has not encountered some obstacle that has thrown his plans off. God is still at his good work for the world and for our lives. John 5.17 is a verse that speaks to this. The context is the religious leaders are criticizing Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath. And he answers in John 5, 17 by saying, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Meaning that even on the Sabbath, the father continues to do good work. He's continually at work and Jesus is continually at work. Even when our lives seem bleak. But since we live in a world or in a society where we expect instantaneous answers to any question, we can get impatient with God. We don't know what he's doing in this particular situation, and so we want to ask the internet, what is God doing? And if he doesn't give us an immediate answer, we complain, oh, God's not doing anything. And yes, it can be frustrating when we don't see progress or things don't change at the speed that we want or our prayers remain unanswered. Yet God often has work to do in us before he does the work that we want him to do in this situation. Think about the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50. God would use Joseph to save his family and even the nation of Israel from starvation And God would put Joseph in a position where his parents and his brothers bowed down to him. And God gave Joseph these dreams, prophesying or looking forward to this. Yet Joseph received these dreams when he was 17 years old and he was way too immature to handle that huge responsibility. In fact, he was an arrogant jerk who berated his brothers. And so Joseph was sold into slavery and endured 13 years of slavery, wrongly accused. 
And do you think during those 13 years that Joseph had questions, wondering, what are you doing, God? You gave me these dreams, and here I am in slavery in Egypt. And he maintained or stayed in that position while God was doing work in his life and testing him and strengthening him until he turned 30 years old. And God raised him up to bring salvation to the nation and to his family. And Ezekiel is training to be a priest and he's looking forward to be a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he gets deported to Babylon and he stays there for five years before this vision happens. And you and I, friends, might go for years without an answer to a particular prayer. And if that happens, God is not doing us an injustice. God is not being cruel. He is at his work in us and on the situation and he will reveal what we need to know when it is the right time. So the question then is, how do we keep living when we're in this time where we don't know what God is doing? Well, first of all, we need to keep trusting in and waiting on the Lord. To not judge things only based on what we can see. To remember that God is always at his work, always accomplishing his purposes and working things out according to his timing. So we trust in, we wait on the Lord. But waiting doesn't mean we sit around and don't do anything. Waiting in the Bible is an activity. One of the best descriptions of active waiting on the Lord is Psalm 27. Listen to Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my life. So there's seeking after the Lord there. There's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27, 11, Teach me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. There's wisdom to be gained. Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So trusting in the Lord, waiting on the Lord means this active pursuit of God and drawing near to him as he sees us through the bleak and blah times. And Ezekiel had already lived in this situation for five years, so every day of those five years was a day of preparation for the ministry that God would unveil to him. And then secondly, we need to keep focused on living as God's image bearers in whatever situation we find ourselves. We're stamped with the image of God and we need to reflect his image, his values, his character and honor him in whatever situation we are. Even if we have not yet achieved or attained or gotten to where we want to get to. And we don't sit back and wait for God to make everything comfortable or normal for us before we do anything, before we live Wherever we are at, we bear the image of God. And we do that through the basic Christian practices like cultivating a daily walk with God, making time for prayer, time to take in his word, time to reflect on his word, to pray about it, to act on it, to engage in Christian community, for we need one another to say to one another, keep on going, keep on trusting even though you don't see what God is doing right now. And whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God by the Spirit of God. Like Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So we do everything to the glory of God by the Spirit of God in whatever situation we find ourselves. And that means caring for young children, doing laundry, fulfilling your duties at work, investing in your marriage, making time to get together with a friend, cooking a meal for someone, doing your studies, working at your summer job, bearing witness to Christ when you have opportunity. Be an image bearer of God for wherever you are at and God will reveal what you need to know when you need to know it. Because even in bleak or blah situations, God is still working. So we need to keep trusting, keep waiting on him, keep being an image bearer. And on the back page of the bulletin, I have a little prayer that you might want to pray when you think about a situation that you're frustrated with, a situation that you've been praying about. And it says simply this, God, What are you doing in this situation? Because I don't know how to pray. And then, James 1.5, which says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we ask God for wisdom on what to pray. And so I want to practice this right now, And as we go to prayer, I want you to bring to mind some situation in your life that has been a struggle, that you have prayed about, that you are frustrated with, and maybe have been for a long time. And I just want you to bring that situation to the Lord right now. And just just in one word or a couple of words, just mention that situation to the Lord right now in your heart. And then pray the prayer, God, what are you doing in this situation? Because I don't know how to pray. And then hear James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so, ask the Lord for wisdom on what to pray. Whether it be for a person, whether it be for patience, whether it be for wisdom or something that you need to grow in, whether it be something you need to confess, ask God for wisdom on what you need to pray. And then we need to rest and remind ourselves of the character of God. And so God, we come to you at this moment and you know all of the situations and the challenges that are being thought about right now 
in the lives of the people that are here and watching online. And some might be very discouraged because of what they've been going through or frustrated with, maybe for years. And yet, God, you, you see us, you love us, you care about us, you don't forget about us. You dealt with sin and death to save us. You are continually at work for our good behind the scenes as we wait. So grant us strength to continue to trust you, to continue to walk day by day as we wait for you to unveil your perfect timing and your will and your solutions or your revelations. We look forward, God, to what Ezekiel will teach us. And we ask that you will open our hearts and minds to see what he saw as he conveys it to us. But for each person here and watching online now, I pray, Lord, that you will grant strength as we wait, as we continue on day by day to trust you. And I pray this in your name.